Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's writing both timely and timeless. Jumpstart your broomstick, grab your wizarding hat, and join us on our journey through Equal Rights and the Complete Discography. All right, so Equal Rights, book three. We're making progress deeper into the OVA. OVA? OVA? I don't know. We are past the mediocre appetizers and we are on to slightly heartier appetizers. We're the soup course. Yeah, we've we've passed the weird cheeses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, you know, we, we could contextualize this whole thing as like one of those big unseen university lunches. Mm. Yes. I, w- I would consider. Does university have good food? <laughs> Canonically, yes. Yeah, the, pretty huh. much that's all they do. In fact, because the the wizards are very much about the earthly pleasures, and as long as those that's earthly right. pleasures are not sex, apparently, yes. nothing, nothing of the flesh, flesh. Oh, they're not academics; they're priests. Little column A, little column B. Yeah. So, I guess I should probably read my plot synopsis, eh? But first, let's introduce uh, folks we have tonight on this podcast. So that people <laughs> can know our names. Hi, I'm Minna, and I have hay fever. Hi, I'm Justin, a mild-mannered, badass blacksmith. I'm Dr. Anna, the adjunct professor of quantitative thaumaturgy. And I am Dr. Aaron, Acting Vice Chair of Public Misunderstanding of Magic. And tonight we are discussing Equal Rights, the third book in the Terry Pratchett Discworld series. So the plot of Equal Rights starts with the last voyage of a dying wizard, namely Drum Billet, who's traveling to the birth of an eighth son of an eighth son, upon whom to bestow his staff, and along with it, his magical power. Only one problem. He gives the power to the child, and then shortly thereafter, all of those in attendance realize that the baby is not a son so much as it is a daughter. Whoops. The child's parents and the resident witch and midwife, Granny Weatherwax, resolve to hide the staff and forget the whole thing, and the child is named Escarina and is the protagonist of our novel, as you can probably guess. So as Ascarina, or Ask for short, grows up, her magical powers start to manifest, causing chaos all around her and endangering also everyone around her, including her family. So Granny once again steps in and takes Esk under her wing to train her to be a witch. This is more successful than just ignoring Esk's powers, but ultimately not particularly successful overall, since Esk is really not a witch, but in fact a wizard. So Esk's powers, kind of aided by the sentient staff given to her by Billet, continue to grow, and they grow out of control as well. 
and Granny decides to take Esk to the grand unseen university of wizards in Ink Morpork. They have a variety of adventures on their journey, including the acquisition, repair, and magical nitrous boosting of a broomstick that has seen better days, transformation of a number of barrels of ale first into milk, then into very fine peach brandy, and then into something rather nasty indeed, a stowaway voyage on a river caravan, and Esk's introduction to the traveling wizard Treetle and his apprentice Simon, who are themselves on their way to Unseen University. But on the edges of their travels lurks an insidious threat, the creatures of the Dungeon Dimensions, which you may remember from the Light Fantastic, have taken some interest in Esk, whose staff is siphoning uncontrolled magic toward itself like a magnet. They've also taken a lot of interest in Simon, whose... Magical powers are immense, and whose mind is both brilliant and unshielded from them. Esk and Granny finally arrive in Ankh-Morpork, only to find the gates of Unseen University barred to them, leaving them to find some other way in. Granny takes the side door and goes through the servants' area, uh, using the head housekeeper Mrs. Whitlow's fascination with witchcraft to her advantage. Esk, meanwhile, encounters Simon Treadle once again at the gate and goes with them all the way to the Great Hall. Simon dazzles the Arch-Chancellor with his magical ability, but when Esk tries to prove her worth and secure her own position within the university, nothing happens. Esk has to resort to working as a cleaner, to lingering in the back of classrooms and learning around the edges of the students. Uh, it's very goodwill hunting. And But frustrated by her slow progress, Esk turns to the library, where she once again encounters Simon. And there in the library, where, where things things get very odd in libraries with that much magic and the, that many words all around. And the boundaries between worlds are worn thin. And in this environment, the things from the dungeon dimensions take their opportunity and attack. Recognizing that Simon is their conduit, Esk's staff leaps from her hand and hits him over the head, dispelling the things, but plunging Simon into a coma. Esk and Granny go to Simon's bedside. Esk has thrown away her staff into the river after the awful thing it's done. But Granny explains to her that it, in fact, saved her, but that Simon's mind is lost in the dungeon mansions. And there's a hefty risk that any attempt to bring him back would instead bring something else back. Again, calling back the Light Fantastic. Granny enters into a traditional magical duel with Cutangle, um, the Arch-Chancellor, while Esk sneaks back to Simon's side and enters his mind in a rather witch-like uh, form of magic in, in an effort to bring him back. Esk reaches a stalemate of terror with the things, and Granny reaches a stalemate of mutual respect with Cut Angle. Uh, and with a magical storm raging outside, the two magical elders venture out to retrieve the staff. They find it in the center of an ice flow and rush back. Well, rush isn't quite correct because they are still on the extremely elderly broomstick. Uh, to return the staff to Esk. Once it's returned to her hand, the things flee, but Esk realizes that 
they're in fact drawn by magic and feed off of it. And the only way to win this game is to not play it at all. Simon and Esk wake up with plans to invent a whole new type of magic based on the conscious and defined plan to not use any magic at all. Esk and Simon remain in the city and Granny returns home as they're considering Cut Angle's offer to teach witch magic at the university. And that's the book. So let's, I guess, go into the the four, I would, I'd say there are four main characters to the book primarily. We've got our we've got our protagonist and our foil and two wizards who stumble in later. Yeah, that that sounds about right. First, we have Esk, who is the eighth daughter, but not really the eighth daughter, but uh, not the eighth son, the intended eighth son, who is actually a daughter of an eighth son. The first daughter of an eighth son. The first daughter of an eighth son. Um, Preceded by seven sons. Preceded by seven sons. Who is given the staff by Drum Billet, which is... There are some names that just don't sound like names. Honestly, it sounds like a Star Wars name to me. That might just be because of Gorb Bullet. uh, That's exactly what I was going to say. Gorb Bullet. (laughs) Borgullet. Borgullet. That's it. Thank you. I knew that sounded wrong. I'm not going to do Rogue One. Uh, attempted impersonation because that would probably drive all our listeners away if our listeners don't want star wars then why are they here (laughs) sorry that was a joke (laughs) but have you met any but yeah so esk uh has a lot of unrestrained magical power about her at first she is able to at least focus it somewhat by learning the ways of witchery but then when that goes out of control is attempts to learn more traditional wizard air quotes, high magic to, uh, to restrain it further. Esk is definitely a, a much different, uh, I would say is probably a much different character from our previous two main point of character, point of view characters. Whereas say Rincewind is very cowardly, uh, Cowardly is maybe not the best word. Eh, maybe. Um, no, it's definitely accurate. And mostly self-serving with a heart of gold. Esk is, I, w- I don't want to say pure, but she's very, I want to say naive, but that's not quite right. And also eight. She is eight. Yeah, no, that's a perfect way to describe it. She is an eight-year-old character in a fantasy novel. <laughs> That's so funny. I keep forgetting she's eight because she's also so confident in herself that she just talks like a grown-up half the time. Yeah. I feel like she does have some similarities to Two Flower, though, that they both have some innocence about them. But obviously, ask partly because she's eight. I think that reflects on two flower as much as as it does on esque honestly the uh the childlike idealism you know and why why doesn't the world work the way I expect it to yeah, I think they both have that thing where like they don't know that it doesn't work that way, so it it does work that way <laughs> and, and that's expressed in her magic too sometimes you know yeah. she does she does things with magic we'll come back that, to that yeah we'll we'll come back to that we will come back to that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is also 
the book where we really get the introduction to an extremely important Discworld character who will return and return and return and return and return in the form of Granny Weatherwax, who I think, like a lot of... I'm going to bang on this thesis too much. Um, like a lot of the characters that we first see in, in these Discworld books, she enters and is changed by her first appearance in Discworld. You know, because she she's a a very different character going forward after the events of Equal Rights. Well, it's interesting because Equal Rights actually represents sort of a failure to Granny that she she was so confident that she knew precisely how to approach the situation, how to deal with this kid, and she was wrong. And I think that that shaped her. Uh, her attitudes toward her own actions and um, made her somewhat less arrogant in the books to come. Yeah. So Granny Granny represents this uh, field of magic practitioners up in the Ramtops who are predominantly female who practice what I think would probably be described as folk magic, um, broadly speaking. Uh, it's a lot of the things that that a lot of women have been burned at the stake for in several past millennia, you know, being smart and being capable and knowing how to deal with life as it as it approaches you. But also people who are relied on, you know, she's she's a midwife and she's a doctor and she's uh, a psychotherapist, even if she wouldn't call it that. And she, you know, is a repository of knowledge. And she also keeps goats. Yes, with their weird, weird eyes. Listen. Goats have weird eyes. Goats goats have ridiculously scary eyes. So the first time I, like, saw a goat as an adult, like, in person, there is a, there is a sort of educational zoo in San Jose called Happy Hollow, which has a... It, it's a wonderful place. Um, and they had a beer walk here a couple months ago, and like in this. And so, like, it was a beer walk with a petting zoo. So my first encounter of goats as an adult human being was while I was very tipsy. And I learned that goats have rectangular like irises, pupils. Um, and it was horrifying and enthralling. They're demons. That's all I can explain with. Yeah, so like I, I'm not sure how much deeper we need to go into Granny because we will be talking about her a lot uh, in the books to come. I think that the major thing is what Anna pulled out, which is that she is is humbled by this experience, but also you know she 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 stands toe to toe with the Arch Chancellor of uh, Unseen University and almost bests him. Nobody really wins that duel. I think they were distracted at the end. They essentially just declare it to be a stalemate. Minna, do you want to describe Simon? Sure, I can describe Simon. Uh, Simon is... He's very, very smart and very, very... He's all brain and not very much connection with his body, to be frank. I think is how he's trying to be... Or how he's kind of presented. Uh, he's, like, all legs and elbows and he has a persistent stutter. It's everyone kind of adapts to it around him, and his mentor kind of diagnoses him with hay fever as an exclamation explanation for this, which is 
okay. <laughs> um, but he is also, you know, extremely, extremely smart, self-taught wizard who is basically, like, about to revolutionize magic as far as the wizards around him are concerned. I think he's, like, there for a couple weeks and he's already teaching classes, that kind of thing. He's also, because he is so powerful, he's drawing a lot of attention, not just from the wizards, but from the things. Right. The things. It's uh, this, A lot of the, the way that they portray the dungeon dimension and, and magic and stuff in this reminds me a lot, if you've read any Charles Strauss uh, Laundry Files books. Um, oh, Yeah. You know, the, the the way they do magic is by doing calculations. It's computational demonology. And, um, you know, you can theoretically do it in your head, but the, the, the things that watch in the night sort of start eating away at your brain. A lot of this actually seemed... Because they take an interest in you. Right. Or, or because, you know, you're, you're doing these weird multi-planar calculations in your head and the open little tiny micro rifts and they call it K syndrome when you get too much um, brain matter eaten away by the watchers in the night. A real quick question because I didn't, I I don't think I caught it in the book. Uh, Is Simon given an age in the book? Good question. I think I just assume like adolescent teenage because of his physicality. Same. Yeah. I just, I was curious. Whatever is like sort of normal uh, admission to the university age. I felt like he was younger than that, that I felt like he was supposed Definitely to be older than Esk. at least roughly close to Esk's age. Really? I thought he was older than Esk. I don't think it's stated clearly. Though. I also thought he was older. Yeah, I thought like late teens. That's a good but question. But I'm not sure it's clearly stated. It's definitely not. I guess the last character who has uh, a meaningful amount of screen time is the Arch-Chancellor Cut Angle. Cute Angle... That's a good question. Q-Tangle is how Celia Emery pronounces it in the audiobook. I don't know if that's verified with anyone. Okay. So we can go with Q-Tangle. He, he's not dissimilar from the other unseen university arch-chancellors that we've seen so far. That he's the same sort of older, kind of stodgy wizard who has gotten to where he is by surviving very well not necessarily on his intellectual merits although this book really has a lot less of the like vindictive murdering each other nature of the wizards that is explored in color of magic and light fantastic but cutangle is he he's he's definitely a fairly stereotypical feeling wizard and it actually turns out that he he comes from the Ram Tops as well. That's where he that's where he grew up as a, grew up as a child, and that's something that kind of brings him closer to Granny near the end of the book. Is you know reminiscing about his happy childhood in this rural location and a part of himself that he's honestly at this point lost or thinks he's lost. He definitely ends the book sort of trying to romance uh, granny a little bit. Not very effectively. Well, he's been out of the game for a few decades. 
I do think like over the course of the book, he gets a little bit more open-minded and he's yeah. definitely gets a little bit more flexible, sort of mirroring granny, I think. And I think especially seeing granny in action takes him from being very dismissive of granny and esque um, and witch magic in general to really considering granny to be an equal in magical power. So do we want to talk about the main theme of this book? Because, oh boy, does this book have themes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the thing that I really picked up on was sort of the, sort of th- through the lens of these different magical practices, comparing sort of witches folk magic, which really is mostly quote-unquote women's work, versus this, like, Vancean magic of the wizards that's pretty clearly making fun of the academy, but sort of also has increasing sort of fears and concerns about like the post nuclear age that this book is being written in. Um, It's really looking at what patriarchal societies do to perpetuate themselves and how they react to threats to their structure. Um, At least that's sort of what I was taking out of it. For sure. And That's actually interesting because to me, it feels like that's a more subtle theme than it appears on the surface. That at the surface, it feels like the book is a pretty, a pretty straightforward commentary on like the ridiculousness of fantasy. Um, magic and the gendered binary in it that there's the flashy academic real magic that wizards have um and then the kind of mundane herbal folk magic that witches have um and we we see this all through esk who's this child of both worlds um but the the deeper theme that I think you're getting at is that um, not only is this this sort of straightforward look at, you know, how is magic portrayed in literature, but we also see kind of the toxicity of that gendered binary and how it's being perpetuated. Um, that, again, again, looking at Esk, it's not just the wizards telling Esk that she can't be a wizard. It's Granny, too. It's frankly mostly Granny for the first half or so of the book. Yeah, it's, it's almost an out-of-context problem for her. Like, you know, that's not even, that's not even within the realm of, of possibility. That's not a thing that happens. And it feels, it feels like a more subtle point on academia as well, that wizards we've already drawn the parallels between wizards the the unseen university and the ivory tower um and it really felt to me very reminiscent of how older women in academia can be rather vicious about policing the um like gender expression and work um and attitudes of younger women um which can be you know, honestly, you know, quite vicious and toxic. I don't even think it's like that subtle, uh, compare like an analogy to like gender bias in academia, though. Like, at a certain point, 
witchcraft is literally just called like the soft magics or something and you're like oh yeah okay we're going for that yeah absolutely just the idea that like things that deal with like people and the heart and things that can't be quantified as easily are women's thing to look at and then everything that's like really really theoretical and lots of calculation and stuff is dudes and as as really synthesizes the two at the end that's how she that's how she wins and that's really where the that's where the doing by not doing thing comes from it's you know it's taking the the wizardry of applying the like headology that she learned from granny something that also sort of jumped out to me is okay our three books in and I've yet to find an actual good thing for uh, answer for the question of what do wizards actually do? <laughs> Which you're um, not wrong. Yeah. So I mean, and and comparatively, the the witches we see in the in in equal rights are typically people who, possibly for their own self interest, are helping other people. Or they're pillars of their community in some way, shape, or form. They're midwives. They are their mediciners. They are headologists. And this is possibly just because I work in the hell pit that is Silicon Valley. But it reminds me of like the the difference between when technology or science is applied in a possibly a theoretical corporate setting versus when it is applied for community service. Yeah, I, I buy that. I don't and like I don't want to like put in like because I don't think that like the witches the witches are not perfect, but it's like there there there's a very like it probably not I I don't think it's necessarily something that I don't know we can't I can't necromance Terry so I can't ask him if he might have intended that but it definitely at least stood out to me. Yeah, I think you know, and I think that he thinks about this in in later books as well because I can't remember which book it is, but. Uh, primarily the i think the one of the arch chancellors later on says you know what we do is we stay in the university and we don't practice magic and that's what we do i think that's red cully actually i think that is red cully to to veterinary at some point i think pretty soon we're just going to get to red cully and it'll stay red cully i think so yeah Okay, so they're just they're they're the dudes at your friendly local gaming store who are quote unquote experts of D and D and don't buy anything. Oh no, it's the other way around. It's they have all of these world mending magics, and they're the ones who know it. So nobody else has to, as we'll see very soon in sorcery. Oh yes, I think there's also something fun here about like when you have this very strict gender divide and like these stereotypes and places you're supposed to fit in. What do you do if you don't fit into either? Because, like, for Esk, she can't just go the opposite direction and be a wizard, because that's not enough either. She needs to carve out an Esk-shaped hole for herself. And this is where it would have been really interesting to see this book written now and not in the 80s, because I feel like Esk is potentially, like, a non-binary icon, but that it's just not quite there. I think that would be a different story, though, honestly. I think that that having Ask as a non-binary character diminishes the story, which is really looking at... It's a diff- it'd be a different story. 
It would be a different story. This is really about the magic, I think, uh, with the gender roles as the avatar of that, maybe. I could be totally wrong. I think there's something in women being able to not have to choose either do very traditional women's work or, uh, you know, you have to go out and conform to, like, everything masculinity places on you. Like, I, I do think there's even now still something in that finding a way to be a woman and just fucking choose what you want to do. And, you know, Simon event at the end of the book takes on her style of magic as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot to unpack and it's a very good book and I'd recommend you read it. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to move on to the other, our other theme stuff? Yeah. Do you want to talk about magic more broadly? Let's talk about magic. Yeah. Magic theory is really fun in Discworld. I love magic. Uh, and I don't really love fancy and magic. That doesn't super appeal to me, but I think the ways that Discworld uh, explores it is more like... They do it that way, but that's not what magic is, you know? Um, It's so clearly about, like, the way you look at the world is how you can then access magic. Because these two traditions of magic, wizardry looks at, you know, these really carefully calculated things, these spells that are the safe way that they can access magic. uh, Because they, you know, they're trying to change the world as it is. Um, And, like, sort of bring things from imaginary to real. And that's and they have a very specific way that they can do that in ways that they can't do that. And then for witches, magic is something completely different. It's looking at what's already in the world and working with that. But those aren't the only ways you can interact with ad- magic very clearly because we've kind of already seen it like with the way Two Flower and even Rincewind worked with magic, but Esque really does get to dig into that, and Simon too, really, because they're both. This is it's kind of important that they're kind of both. They developed outside those traditions. Like Simon is a self-taught wizard. They really stress that, and that's part of almost part of his genius. And Esque kind of exists outside of both traditions, so they're able to like look at magic in a way that they're not reliant on those frameworks, which which means they can accomplish things that these people who are bound to a certain way of looking at magic can't because they just don't magic seems to be about what you can understand and how you can how you can sort of construct your thoughts which is really interesting especially tying into the way Terry Pratchett talks about magic as being about words yeah there's a there's a moment where esk summons the staff from from the yes. the barge that i just loved uh, and it was it, it really describes that uh, she knew exactly what she wanted to do. It lay in front of her eyes. The staff wasn't come flying through the air, wrecking the barge and drawing attention to it, to her itself. All she wanted, she told herself, was for there to be a slight change in the way the world was organized. It shouldn't be a world where the staff was in the fleeces. It should be an, uh, it should be a world where it was in her hand. A tiny change, an infinitesimal alteration to the way things were. If Esk had been properly trained in wizardry, she would have known that this was impossible. All wizards knew how to move things about, starting with protons and working upwards. But the important thing about moving something from A to Z, according to basic physics, was that at some point it should pass through the rest of the alphabet. The only way it should co- one should cause something to vanish at A and appear at Z would be to shuffle the whole of reality sideways. The problems this would cause didn't bear thinking about. Ask, of course, had not been trained, and it is well known that a vital ingredient to success is not knowing that what you're attempting can't be done. 
Yeah, I just love that. And I think that sort of raw magic, uh, sort of the deep magic uh, almost. It's not even that it's raw power, though. It's raw, like, it's like you have a mind that can expand to hold a lot more than, oh my god, sorry, I just made a connection with, like, there's this kind of repeated line in the books that, like, most people kind of don't step outside their own minds. And I think that the power that both Simon and Esk have is that they can, their minds can expand to, like, look at the world in a different way and not be restrained by the ideas of what it should be. Right. They don't color, they don't stick to coloring inside the lines because the lines haven't been fully drawn yet. Yeah. It's real good. I also love magic that kind of, like, when people approach magic that way, it's real fun. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of cool things with the witch's magic, too, borrowing. Yeah, let's yes. talk about borrowing, because that was a concept like that, like, I've seen in other pieces of fiction, but was really yeah, cool here. The borrowing is so cool of just sort of quietly riding along in the mind of a creature and experiencing the world as they experience it. And that actually, not only is the borrowing really cool, it ties into something that I think is a fairly strong piece of Discworld overall, which is this concept that form shapes function. That when Esk goes too far and takes over the mind of the hawk rather than simply borrowing it, her mind changes and she, in many ways, becomes the hawk. But even though that's the most obvious way we've seen that the this idea that form shapes function, it's explored in other ways, too, that there's a recurring theme that if you as a person kind of shape yourself into a role or persona, you actually, you become that person. That this could be negative or... It can also be positive, uh, for instance, with Vimes and Moist, who both take on a role. Or Justin, close your ears. Justin, close your ears. La, 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 Feet la, of la. clay. <laughs> Earmuffs. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. God. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, wait until we get into the guards books. Anyway, okay, Justin, you can come back now. Oh, what a mess. Secrets. <laughs> Yeah, borrowing is such a fascinating component of of the witch's sort of array of abilities. I love it. I love wild magics. Yeah, it's my favorite. And one thing that I one thing that I really like is how it's part of the witch repertoire, and it's distinctly something that, at least as we are presented in the book, that. Wizards really aren't even capable of thinking of um, because the the way they would do it is how a lot of is sort of how you think you would think you would do it maybe like initially upon reading that, which is stealing someone's mind, which is wrong, but it also doesn't work because like if you're stealing the mind of a hawk, well, you don't know how to be a hawk, but if you're just borrowing along and riding for the ride and sort of tapping the rudder in the right direction, you get a lot further. That's, you know, a sort of circling back to the the idea of masculine and feminine 
you know, or or yin and yang, the, the the force versus the 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 gentle touches. And also, there's the aspect of even even if you learn to be the hawk, you're going to forget to be the human. I think for me, the the neat thing about the difference between I think how Esk approaches and how Granny approaches borrowing is Esk does, for the most part, kind of take the wizard route, and it. it it kind of highlights the difference between those kinds of magic. Like, a witch works with what's there, whereas a wizard just takes whatever their thought is and makes it happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So an- another, um, I mean, we can talk about magic for hours. Uh, another thing that I think that Simon and Esk both are representative of the, of the dangers of being prodigies because, you know, being good at stuff is great. People like that. Being so dangerously good at something that people don't know what to do with you, then you run into these these barriers that exist across, you know, the regardless of patriarchy and those other things, you know, that once you get several standard deviations away from the mean, people start trying to stuff you back into the middle as opposed to um, seeing where you go. Absolutely. Because you're a challenge to pre-established constructs. Oh yeah, and also reincarnation happened oh, yeah. in this book. Billet first gets reincarnated as an apple tree, which um Wait, what? That was Billet? Yeah, yeah. that was Billet. He's buried under that tree. Oh, I thought it was just a Oh, I thought it was just a random magician who turned into a tree like Merlin or something. <laughs> no, no, they bury him under that apple I tree. Missed that. That's why Ask likes I hanging out it. in it. I thought it was just a random magic that's tree why, that showed up near Ask because Ask. <laughs> and that's why Granny reads it the riot act because it's he's they're like this is creepy. You're holding a little girl. I mean, I knew it was a wizard. Right. I just didn't know it was. Yes, it's Billet. Him. Uh, and then he gets bored huh. with that and he gets reincarnated again as an ant. This also begs the question of: Is this where sapient sapient pearwood comes from? No, it's not. Sapient Pearwood uh, is explained oh, right. in sorcery, but the green billet apple is famous for being almost indescribably impossible to eat, <laughs> but also an extremely good source of uh, apple crush for making scrumple, which is a very alcoholic apple jack. So I think we all liked this book, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I don't know. I don't remember what I've given his ratings before, but like, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this one as like a full body, uh, like a full work so much more than the first two. And I, I didn't particularly dislike the first two. Yeah, the first two aren't bad, but they're not representative either. Yeah, this really feels to me like Terry's finally hitting his stride and figuring out how what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. And not only that, this is the first book that actually has layers that there's all sorts of different things that it's saying yeah a clearer through line too yeah that was something that immediately jumped out to me is that they're okay especially like fantastic like fantastic felt like it was a shotgun spread of scenes at points but like this there there's a much there's a much stronger a to b to c to d Actual pacing? What's that? <laughs> I just... There was... It's funny because there's like... 
there's bits of this that I liked more than others, but like some of them just felt like, oh, this is actually drawing on like fiction that I know and like, as opposed to like color of magic and light fantastic felt I was missing a lot of the jokes and references. But there's I there's this specific brand of like comfort read I have that's like usually British women writing fantasy where you have like this like village community and often women having to deal with that like personal like web of like relationships and like a magic that's a lot slower and more like rooted in the natural like Robin McKinley is a good example and it also kind of I don't this probably wasn't intended by the way I don't think that was intended but I also thought there were like echoes of like Diana Wynne Jones for me as well, and also I don't know if that was intended. I don't know the relative time spans. I think they're writing at similar times, but like I just really need Granny Weatherwax to meet like Sophie Hatter, and I just think that would be very fun. Minute, you are actually going to die when we meet Tiffany Aching. I have met Tiffany Aching. Oh, okay. I've read <laughs> We Free Men. I've read Wintersmith. I don't okay. know why that was the first Discworld book I read in high school. I always forget that that was the first Discworld book because it was so long ago and I didn't know what Discworld was. And also it's like the second or third Tiffany Aiken. I don't... Mm-hmm. High school me would just pick up a random book and like walk off with it. I mean... High school you was a much braver person than I was. High school me was a much braver person than I am. It took me years to finally be able to be like, okay, I can approach Discworld because I wanted to start from the beginning and the beginning is Color of Magic, which is less my thing. I've had to relearn how to step into the middle of a series. (laughs) Well, actually, there's a fun tidbit uh, with your your point about the, you know, what... British women writing fantasy, which is after this book came out, since Terry wasn't really established at that point, um, he received a great deal of fan mail since Terry is a recently gender neutral name. He received a great deal of fan mail addressed to (laughs) uh, Ms. Teresa Pratchett. And this is why he has an author photo on everything else. You know, my my perception of this and my ability to state this outright is is colored by the fact that I am, you know, uh, a white male. But I think that Terry does a decent job of writing female characters. Yeah. Um, he treats them as full characters. Yeah, and like even compared to Light Fantastic, this is leaps and bounds better. I feel like. Yeah. In so many ways. Um, something that. I enjoyed a little er, that, that like I found to be a little bit more interesting was I think that the I liked the dynamic of like Esk and Granny Weatherwax like just a whole bunch. Yeah. Like just I I'm okay <laughs> just because of like different types of dynamics like the Rincewind the Rincewind two flower dynamic is like oh hey that's a comedic dynamic I enjoy but. Um, if there is one thing that you can get me, like, that you can hit me over the head with all day, and I will ask for more, it is magical teachers and apprentices or students <laughs> with, like, nuanced <laughs> relationships. I was literally just thinking, Luke Yoda? <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> like, in levels of just, like, trolldom, Granny Weatherwax and Yoda are both up there. Yeah. 
Okay, I also want Granny Weatherwax to meet Yoda. <laughs> Just horrible older trolls. The world would burn. Unite. But I, I, I think it like especially works because Esk's relative like innocence and wide eyed curiosity works so well as a like a foil for Granny, mm-hmm. who is sort of a a, a a master at playing people. And her response has been like, you know, never declare that she doesn't know something, but instead just like say, it have like this string of flippant answers. Those are probably one of, some of my favorite parts of the early books is just like Granny Weathermax saying like, like internally, shit, I don't know. Externally, <laughs> flippant answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also like the, the scene early on with the beehive really stuck out to me because you know, she she gets them to just sort of do what she wants and asks, like, you obviously used magic to do that. And she was like, why do you think, do you think I used magic? And uh, and then asks says, no, I think you just know a lot about bees. <laughs> uh, and Granny grinned, exactly correct. That's one form of magic, of course. Esk says, what, just knowing things? Knowing things that other people don't know. Oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's such a good passage. Mind you, that's also what wizards are, just in a different direction. Right. Yeah, no, exactly that. I mean, I think that it's early on setting up this this dynamic of, you know, they're, they're two, two sides of the same coin, right? Because Granny says, you know, witches have got to be different, and that's part of the secret. Same with wizards. They, you know, they wear these ridiculous things, and um, we haven't even gotten to the full level of ridiculousness of what the wizards wear. Um, and... You know, they put on all of this pageantry and stuff so that people know that they're wizards. Because if you were just walking around in normal clothes, nobody would know that you're a witch or a wizard. You'd have to do magic. And you don't want to do magic. Because then people start expecting you to do magic. I just I just found the quote of Granny being like, internally, I don't know, externally, I know. What's an elephant? A kind of badger, said Granny. She hadn't maintained forest credibility for 40 years by ever admitting ignorance. Ah, uh, yeah. Which I think is also part of the reason why like, I desperately love Granny is that like, she's allowed to be this very, very flawed character. Yes! It's extremely good. And like, not even flawed in a way that's just about women, too, which is nice. Yeah, because that could so easily have happened in the book that this is—is is that Esk and Granny could be flawed in ways that are like tied to them being women, but it's mostly tied to like Granny being stubborn as hell. And oddly, I feel like Granny's flaws are almost actually traditionally masculine flaws. Like her primary flaw would be arrogance. Yeah, yeah, I think they're. I, I it's like I think that's something for like that Terry does really well is that I typically like characters are not defined by they get to be realistically flawed. I think is it, realistically flawed people in unusual situations, which is which, which like it jumps out. I think a lot more here because yeah, I'm glad we're starting to get that. I think he has a knack for having people be an archetype, but not a stereotype. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like the, the he engages with this tr- this trope 
right at the beginning of the book that wizards know the death is impending and hand off staffs to the successor and that it's traditionally male-to-male inheritance and then immediately subverts it. Because the wizard yep. gets it wrong. Can I just, uh, Aaron, Hello. remember your theory about observation changing how the Discworld works? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I love that this is continuing to be supported by Discworld. She considered that the future was a frail enough thing at best, and if people looked at it hard, they changed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just saw that, and I was like, oh, yeah, Aaron's thing. <laughs> yeah, and remind me of that when we get to Raising Steam, because I have some thoughts about that. <laughs> Do we want to go on to favorite part detail passage? I mean, I already did mine. Oh, yes. I slipped that in there. Naturally. You did. Like a pro. Okay, the rest of us, like the amateurs we are, are going to talk about our favorite details, parts, or passages of the book. (laughs) Justin, what was your favorite bit? So, my favorite, like, probably my favorite bit of the book was... Like, I I don't think if I had... I don't think... I can't think of, like, one specific part... No, no, probably my favorite part of the book was Esk returning home to her family and turning her brother into a pig. <laughs> Just because it's like that that the, like that's beating Harry Potter by like a good 20 uh, years. Yes. But doing it I think in a much funnier way. And I think that the, the other amazing part that goes with that is that her family just sort of looks at her brother and is just like, shrug, it suits him. <laughs> I love how just like pragmatic and down to earth they all are. <laughs> but my probably my favorite line for the book, like, you know, there, there's all, all of my, all of my like Kindle notations here are like, I mark off like 50 quotes from the book, but it's like the, yeah. the one that like really stood out to me was, Million to one chances crop up nine times out of ten, which I think is just sort of like the 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 thing of like Discworld characters possibly on some level know they are in a Terry Pratchett novel. Justin, can you earmuffs for a second? I will remove them. So, uh, Anna, put your hand back. Put your hand up when I when I can when I can listen again. Guards. Yep. He is so going to love that passage in guards. Yeah. <laughs> Anna, you can raise your hand now. Thank you. I also personally adored the battle or duel between Granny and Q Tangle. The it was this callback to and I I was a kid who very much grew up on like the you know Arthurian books and the callback to that was amazing. I absolutely loved that scene. The other favorite quote I have is that Esk was already learning that if you ignore the rules, people will half the time quietly rewrite them so that they don't apply to you. <laughs> it's a very good quote. Definitely sums up Esk's character. Yeah, and that's sort of headology magic too. I feel like to people who haven't read the book, we do at some point have to explain what headology is. I think I think if we were to describe it, it would be like practical psychology. Yeah. Yeah. 
like understanding how people tick and using it and mostly doing that so in such a way that you convince them to think something like you wear a pointed hat and walk around so they think you're magic that's headology right or you know you you have all of the stuff in your house that makes you look like a witch therefore what you say obviously must make me better yeah like the placebo effect yeah. is like mm-hmm. 80 to 90 percent of her healing yeah that's exactly what i was going to say is that it encompasses right. things like the placebo effect or even or even to a certain extent curses mm-hmm. yeah obviously these potions work because you have a wart on your nose yeah like obviously i cursed you really loudly and convincingly so the fact that a ladder fell on you the next day that was me yeah it's it's the you know or the the clipboard effect if you have a clipboard and walk pr- with purpose, people. You know. <laughs> it took me a second. To <laughs> Favorite TTRPG strategy. <laughs> uh, or, or as I, I think it's called, or as uh, TV trips calls it, the Bavarian fire drill. Well, it, it, they actually like in, uh, the if you watch some of the early candid cameras. They did this one stunt called Delaware's Closed today, where they set up a <laughs> they set up a toll booth, and in the description they said they they had like a one of those swing arm things, and they had a man with a clipboard and an official looking hat <laughs> who was just turning motorists around and saying that Delaware was closed today for cleaning, and people were just like, uh, uh, okay, and just turned around. <laughs> it works. That's uh, that's very believable. I mean, that's how leverage works too, right? I yeah. I mean, it, it's. I, I would say that like headology is like if you're familiar with con artistry, it's it's a lot of the same practices. Yeah. Um, oh, shit. Oh is yeah. Moist a witch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And we could probably go into a, like a, a very interesting thing about like performativeness and like playing on expectations and how people people believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. And we could probably do that tangent for the next twelve yeah. episodes. Yeah, <laughs> the next. And I like, mean, there'll be more opportunities. Thirty-eight. Yeah, yeah. So we already went over one of my favorite bits, which was the borrowing passages. So weak for that shit. It was great. One little thing that I thought was really that was really fun that made me flashback to childhood is the first time Esk and her brothers go inside Granny's house and Esk is left there alone and then there's like something pecking at the window, then there's a noise in the chimney, and I'm just like flashing back to scary stories to tell in the dark. <laughs> it was delightful. Yeah, it's funny how well not funny, but it's it's interesting how they contextualize the whole practice of, of borrowing and then like the, the witches feel beholden to the animals that they borrowed and, you know, give them food and stuff like that. They're about connection. Mm-hmm. So the next thing is, is there anything you wish had been done differently? I know Aaron and Anna both have thoughts. So what the heck are the Zoon? We never see them again, yeah. thank God. As far as I remember, at least. But... Oh boy, are they, they are an uncomfortable piece of this book that has not aged well. Although, um, I feel like the, the, it's a trope that appears in a lot of British stories. Yeah. Like, um, I mean, they're, they're even in the, the golden compass. 
Yeah, no, I literally kept forgetting the name of the Zunes and being like, yeah, the Egyptians right. in yeah. my head. Because <laughs> that's what they're called in the Golden Compass. But it's definitely this kind of Romani-esque culture that um, is just sort of uncomfortable. And I, I feel like I feel like it was almost it was almost something interesting, with, especially with the the aspect that um, they can't tell lies, and with the stereotypes about the Romani that they're you know liars, etc. But it was just not actually there. Although I, I did kind of enjoy that little bit with like how they have to have one person who's the the designated liar and everybody everybody thinks it's really funny when they lie there's a general traveling people sort of vibe there um and i was like yeah on it i i did like the idea of the the liar like that was a part that i like that singular character i enjoyed and i liked the concept of it i didn't like find the zoom particularly good at all but like that particular thing Especially of the, well, we call them the liar. We don't call them the diplomat or the public relations guy because why bother? And like that other people, other people in the, in the disc find that very unsettling because they don't, uh, they don't want to keep up appearances. That at least brings back a thing that I sort of like is like the people who, is that a lot of like cultures and groups in the disc keep up appearances of something so that when people don't do it or they buck that and they do something just sort of right up straight, it's sort of just like a little splash of cold water. I think the Zoom just kind of key in for me to like something that I've found like an ongoing thing that's been uncomfortable in Discworld is kind of like this like almost ethnography that Terry Pratchett gets into where he'll be like this random group. But it always kind of feels like an otherized group. Like, because Ankh-Morpork, most of the main characters of Discworld books that I've read have basically felt like they're British people in, like, a British fantasy world. Uh, even with, like, Ankh-Morpork still kind of having a flavor of, like, like it has souks in this and things like that. But I, I just find it uncomfortable that he does, like, the way that he does that in a way that feels like it's playing off of like really stereotypical this is like an ongoing thing with Discworld that just kind of pops up now and then as flavor text and is not the best it has not aged well it probably also wasn't great in the 80s but I don't know not my favorite (laughs) and sometimes he's used that to say interesting things and other times it's just there yeah he does use it to say interesting things. Like, even, like, in this book, there's another time where he talks about, like, that... Well, I, I think sometimes he uses it to go into linguistic stuff, which can be fun, but it's just I don't like that being the way that he approaches it. I, I have less of a content thing that I sort of, like, didn't like, but it's it's pos- a little bit of a structure... That, like, I felt like once we got to the university, things really sped up compared to to the earlier parts of the book. And it definitely felt like there was not really a point between... 
there, there wasn't much between esque sneaks into classes and endpoint crisis. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see more unseen university hijinks. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but like, I'm fine with it as it is. I just sort of wish it was more. Which that's a like if if my like big concern with this book is I want more of it. That's that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and you're gonna get more. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm the same way because I. I do also want more of that universe. Like it felt like there should have been more of that university, but also I wanted more of the witches as well. Like I wanted to see more of like their interconnectedness, both with their villages and like the network of witches. I love granny. The granny has a friend everywhere. It's great. And like, see like the ways that they're, cause you get hints of it, that they're so embedded in like this role they have where they have to facilitate certain kinds of healing and certain kinds of problem solving and they're the midwives they deal with contraception and it's it's really kind of a neat position and i would totally read a book that was just that and i'm sure there are books that are just that because i know there's more witch books i know the akane series exists but yeah i want to live in that space for a little bit that's my comfort zone with fiction sometimes wow not fic I've never too much yeah, the the pacing in this is definitely better than in Color of Magic or Life Fantastic, but mm-hmm. it's still a little bit rough. Yeah, it still very much feels like okay. I've gotten the pieces that I I need to be in play for this thing that I was aiming for, and now it happens. Yeah, it also feels like it's maybe trying to be a shorter book than it should be. Yeah, hmm. that's fair. There are parts of it that feel like they could spread out more. And also, honestly, like, I think that middle part could contract more, like the traveling. Because there were parts of that that I kind of started to, like, zone out. Like the zone. Yeah. But even, like, the bit in the town dragged out a little bit. Although the the tavern scene was extremely good. It was. So, what has stood up well to the test of time? I really liked the sort of final bit of the book, which is that Ask and Simon realize that the only way to win the game is not to play. So they they defeat the the things from the dungeon dimensions ultimately by refusing to engage with them. They refuse to do magic and they reframe the situation. And I think that in general we can all do with maybe a bit more of that. That sometimes stepping outside of what's expected of you and what you feel like should be the solution to the problem and actually thinking about alternate solutions and even just not engaging with things can be a helpful way through problems. And also don't feed the trolls. Yeah. Yeah. That it sort of, it felt a bit like that to me. But I like that phrasing of it as, like, reframing the situation. Because that, again, my my thesis about Simon and Esk, their, their strength being that they don't just do what's supposed to happen now. They, like, take a broader view and step back and, okay, so what is actually what I want to do here? And what is actually going to be helpful to me here? Like, in a fantasy novel, you have a bunch of demons approaching you, you fight them. Or, yeah. you don't. <laughs> There's also Esk's problem solving in play too. Like Simon might think about the the magic uh, of the situation, but Esk is thinking about th- the shortest line through, and mm-hmm. you know, 
we haven't established second thoughts and third thoughts yet. Uh, that's a spoiler. Um, but she's, you know, she's analyzing the situation and, and looking at what is feeding into it and what's, what the outcomes are. And then sort of, well, she's problem solving. I think I said, I sort of touched on this earlier, but like the gender divide and academia stuff, unfortunately, still feels relevant. That whole like soft science versus hard science and like even like humanities versus STEM. Like there's a lot of like, this is the manly, cold, logical academics and this is the soft academics that don't mean much or have much value. I mean, we can even think about it in terms of doctors versus nurses and things like that. Yeah, unfortunately, we're still in that pit. A little bit. A lot bit. What were the perceptions of the book between the the new readers and those of us reading it for the Mumblecoff time? I touched sort of on this, but like I just felt this book had a lot more going on here. Um, smarter people than me on this podcast have illuminated that, uh, expressed that. Uh, I, th- I think it, like there's definitely much more going on here in Equal Right. There is a message that that Terry is trying to do there. He is wanting to explore something in the world he's built now that he's built it, which it, it makes it feel a lot more fleshed out. It makes it feel a lot more solid. I also felt like just like generally because the plot isn't generally okay. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go like a little bit literary theory here. Robin D. Laws has the thing of, there are generally two types of stories. There are procedural stories where people are trying to do a thing or dramatic scenes where people are requesting something of another person. And there's a lot more of the latter in this book. There's a lot more character moments. There's a lot more, like, one character wants something from another and... Instead of, we are trying to run away from a troll, or we got kidnapped by these cultists who want to shoot us in a rocket off the edge of the disc. I like those former stories, but I think, like, just, this is, like, the level, I guess this is getting closer to the level of, like, stuff that people talk to me about Discworld. <laughs> like, it's getting to that point of, like, okay, now I see what people are actually talking about here. Yeah. I think there's something down to structure as well that like the other the other two books that we read were very much like this is a series of episodes that happen about the same people whereas this is more of a this is one story this is kind of a coming of age story or not even but that that what do you call adolescence uh, hero's know, journey whatever what hero's journey I think I was going for Bildungsroman, but I don't really remember what that is well enough to use it. So let's not do that. Uh, I'm a really bad lit miner. <laughs> hey, college dropout here. No, you're right. <laughs> Novel dealing with one person's formative years or spiritual education. Yeah, that thing where you like, you're going to see her childhood and see kind of what she, her growing into herself. And I think the way that that is very much more supports having like character scenes and like sticking to a certain group of characters. Yeah. So how about you veterans? What'd you think about this? On my part, I actually 
liked the book a lot more than last time. I feel like this is the third time I've said this, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of the more subtle themes, etc. I didn't quite get out of it last time that I remember the last time I read it being really frustrated with granny in that I felt like she was, she was just as bad as the wizards, but this time reading through definitely I had the realization of like, that's the point that I didn't get from it last time. I think that might be more about me being more mature than the last time that I read it. But I definitely picked up on a lot of the kind of quieter bits of it and the more nuanced social commentary. Yeah, I, I have the same perspective. Um, in addition, I don't think that I read this one in the context of where it fits in the Discworld timeline. So I think that I took a lot of the things that he's saying there for granted because they appear elsewhere. And the seeing them in the context of where he writes them, I think, really gives it a whole new meaning for me. I think this book actually highlights one of the things that I really like about this project, which is that we're going back to the books and you know, I get to infect Justin with my love of the Discworld. You're welcome. And... You know, say with Minna, although she's already a fan, but then also, yeah. But I I started much yeah. later, so I didn't get to see this early bit. But then, you know, going back and actually thinking critically about each of the books, um, rather than just like devouring them, is has really been an interesting experience so far. I'm really looking forward to going through you know the other thirty eight. Yeah, I I don't think I'd read this book for ten or fifteen years, and honest, and I don't think it had been one of my favorites. Um, I I would move it way higher on my ranking at this point. Again, just because of where it fits in the context of of the greater work. I will say, Justin, you're right, and I think this is starting to show signs of what I've enjoyed about later Discworld, where it it is much more about people and you get that sense of like community and place and like knowing, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's nice. Yeah. There's definitely like, it's, it's the, okay, this is what people actually love. I like, like, okay, I get this. Yeah. And the, the stories are driven by the characters as opposed to the other way around. Something that's fun too, is that it sets up, there's a lot of things that are set up in this that are referenced in other books or, or that come back, which is not necessarily true <laughs> of a lot of color of magic and light fantastic. So there's like Mrs. Palm and the guild of seamstresses. Uh-huh, I know. Uh-huh. So Justin, do you know what the guild of seamstresses is yet? No, we asked you this. We asked you this last episode, but do you know what the guild of seamstresses is yet? Yeah, okay. I don't remember my answer. Um, I, I don't know what it is. Oh, it was a dope answer. I don't remember what it is for either, but I remember being like, I love uh, that. I, I think it might have been like organized crime in some way, because that is my that is my inherent bullshit. Nobody tell him. We gotta find uh, spies. We we need to make a doc and until I figure this out. Like, put it I, in the I, ram tops. That's what the ram tops is for. 
the Ramtops channel, which so far only says predictions. Susan Susan Stowe Helen is Bay. <laughs> Still a prediction that I'm holding out for. I I need to I uh, God, we'll have Aaron whenever he edits the last episode. Uh, we'll we'll have him find my prediction. Yeah, put that in the Ramtops when you find it, Aaron. Um. I, I don't know if I miss I, I think I might have missed something if they mentioned it in this book. They they did, and I'm trying to find it. They didn't out yeah. they didn't outright mention seamstresses. Well Okay. They didn't name of. them the seamstresses. I But there's Esk's commentary, remember? Yeah. It's, it's put okay. I oh God, this this is what happens, listeners, for context here. Um I am typing. I, I, I am in a like a fugue state of exhaustion. Um Aww. I'm I'm living on caffeine and um I'm living on caffeine and pudding cups tonight. Oh, buddy. <laughs> so I cannot remember if there was a reference to this. So I'm going to give a There's another nothing guess. for you to remember. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> so my guess this week for what the Guild of Seamstresses is is they are a network of fate weavers who um, don't actually like look into the future, but just simply assemble the loom of time. They're the Norns. Yeah, but they don't actually like cut the strings or anything, yeah. or like read the future. But because Discworld is so is such a fucking trash disaster, they just have twenty four hour people assuming the weave of reality. Oh, they're the Norns workshop. The Norns have a workshop now. Justin, listen yes. carefully. Okay. They're very friendly. Ask conceded. You know the house down the street where that fat lady lives with all those young ladies you said were her relatives, Mrs. Palm said Granny cautiously. Very respectable. They're not lady. called seamstresses. You're spoiling it. <laughs> okay. 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 We could have dragged this out for so much longer. People come to visit them all night long. <laughs> all night long. I watched. I'm surprised they get any sleep. Um, said Granny. <laughs> it must be a trial for the poor woman with all those daughters to feed, too. I think people could be more considerate. Now I'm like, now I, I'm like, actually, like, disappointed that you didn't let this continue to be a bit. Right? We could have done this for like three or four of us. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, well, that's that. Uh, so, Justin, what is the what is the seamstress's guild? I already gave you an answer this episode. <laughs> Would you spoil the Do you want to know? Do you want to know what Mrs. Palm's full name is? Is it, is it involve Harrietta? No. Sorry. I'm, we can. I'm, we can. Yeah, that's your new one. You need to guess her name every time. Okay, because I went. I, I went with the. I went with the. Um, the lowest of humor. Um, so, is there anything else we can mention without completely spoiling Justin? I could I could take off the headphones well, I was again. I gonna say that <laughs> technically this is supposed to be the interesting references section, but yeah. three three fourths of us were like reference to the future that don't 
that we're not supposed to talk about. You actually had one for an actual reference to a past book. Yeah, well, it's like I'm going to reference past books, and it's, oh, hey, the orangutan is back. Sorry, orangutan. The librarian. Yeah, the librarian is amazing. There is a cool reference, though, in that we see Treadle get really freaked out by the wizard statues, who we know are, of course, actual wizards who were turned to stone last book. I wouldn't actually have picked up on that because I've already forgotten the events of Light Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for mentioning it in the notes. I will say there is no greater joy than listening to an audiobook narrator doing the dialogue for the librarian. It's wonderful no matter which narrator it is. It's always just like the most soulful ook. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the mix of humor and serious topics in these books. Did anybody have a kind of defining moment where Things clicked going from these are some great laughs to, you know, Terry's saying something serious here. I did. There's this moment where Esk thinks, why was it that when she heard Granny ramble on about witchcraft, she longed for the cutting magic of wizardry? But whenever she heard Treadle speak in his high-pitched voice, she would fight to the death for witchcraft. So real. Like, when people, like, you can, like, maybe not like this thing that, like, women are supposed to like or whatever or not want to do this thing but the minute someone is like being an asshole about people who do choose that you're like fuck you yeah because it's like i don't know it's it becomes like an attack on a gender through like the things stereotypically associated with it and that's so much of what this like the the way that people treat witchcraft in the disc world and the way that people treat things associated with women in our world like, so much of what that is is, like, just upholding this at whatever. It's very real to me. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's a weird inversion of that, too, with Granny's reaction to the um, the housekeeper's declaration that she also practices a little bit of magic when, it, when it's very clearly just, like, reading tea leaves. Uh, and Granny's very sort of dismissive of that, which is interesting because it's sort of, like, that almost a classist separation of, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started recording. We were talking about this before we started recording, where I was pretty sure when I was reading it, and I probably missed something because I've missed a lot, but I thought the housekeeper was a witch. I thought we were getting like gradations of types of witch. So like she's the most city witch we know, so she's like the most removed from that function the community that granny has and then the friend that they met traveling is somewhere in the middle where she has to dabble in the fortune telling because that's what city people want from their witches you know i felt like the housekeeper was a witchcraft enthusiast mm-hmm. she was a fan yeah and she like she knew about what to do when a witch showed up like from family lore from the old country or whatever because witches sort of yeah witches sort of exist in their own social strata that's right there's not a lot of like witch witches i think maybe none in ink because that's the reason why granny gets so much business mm-hmm. but it almost feels like that's the slot that a witch would fit into in the city right. that's where she's expected to fit into yeah. in the city <laughs> right and again they sort of he he 
meditates on on witches and their sort of connection to the land in much later books. And for me, one of the important moments was when Esk steps in front of the Arch Chancellor and very proudly is going to is going to show him what she's made of and show her worth and and you know make her place in the university and nothing happens. Um as a reader, at that point we've been really rooting for Esk. Um and narratively you kind of think, well gosh, this is this has got to be this this is it. You know, Esk is going to just blow them away and blow even Simon out of the water and show them who's who and either they're going to have to accept her or throw her out on a te- technicality to move the plot forward. And this alternate path of just nothing happening is is actually very relatable because it feels like, you know, this um combination of performance anxiety and it, it also shows that Ask really does have a lot to learn at that point, even though she she's very smart, she's very talented, and she's very arrogant. And and it highlights that sometimes things don't work out the way we would like them to, even though that seems like it would be narratively convenient. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those. I, I like the ways that this book is not interested in being a traditional wizard coming of age story. She doesn't prove herself at the university and she doesn't defeat the demons by using magic. Also, I love the running gag of Esk being completely clueless. That is endearing as hell. As the dad of an eight-year-old girl who is very smart, she is also exceedingly clueless. So, mm-hmm. you know, it read right for yeah. me. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's that's a thing is like you don't have um there's no real like moments of like rolling your eyes because like this character is dumbed down because they have to be like performatively a kid. Yeah, it was a good way to show that Esk is a kid without making her stupid. But also there are ways she could have picked up on some of this and she didn't. <laughs> I I loved honestly Beyond the fact that she's helped out with, like, animals and stuff and should really know where babies come from, her the little tidbit where she's, like, looking in the urinals at the university and forming her unconfirmed theory of anatomical differences <laughs> or whatever. That's just such a kid thing, like, where you don't... Nobody's actually told you anything and you don't know anything, so you're just, like, trying to figure it out in your head and it makes no sense. There, there is an important thing that I want to talk about here. So, in in in, in her summary, Anna mentions nitro boosting, uh, the broomstick. So here is my proposition: we are going to write a game about street racing witches. <laughs> well, and they have to race at night because the the broom stops working in sunlight. Apparently, yeah. Although I think that might have just so, been that broom. Um. I just, but any which way, yes. Th- this is this is the thing. I'm like, that's the name of the game. <laughs> any which way, that's what it's called. There, there will be like three more pun entries here. But like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to make a racing game of some sort because uh, we're we're going to make a game about street yes. racing broom 
through writing witches. <laughs> Excellent. Tearing down the midnight streets yes. of Ankh-Morpork. You know I'm here for this, and you know I'm here for this because I pasted that quote and put the eyes emoji in our chat. <laughs> and and how is Veterinary going to monetize this? I mean, it's illegal street racing. There's always a way to make money off of it. There will also be um, there will also be a scene where somebody dramatically shouts "Nos!" as the broom blows up. I'm sorry, but we're making magical Fast and the Furious now. <laughs> I was thinking this is pod racing, but which is on brooms, which should not be my first thought. My first thought should be Harry Potter broom racing, because I'm also into that. <laughs> There's so many things that we can draw on for this. <laughs> this is the worst game idea. I love me a fictional sport that involves speed. <laughs> Gotta go faster. So, do do we want to rate the book? Yes, let's rate this book. I personally give it five out of six false ultramarines or possibly spiracles. I gave it seven plus one out of 11 sentient staves. I gave it six out of nine misunderstood euphemisms. I give it three and a half it ripped out of five very thin pages. (laughs) I like that I broke Aaron with mine. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. So what's next on the agenda mort and it is a very very good yes mort is very good you have any predictions uh i'm going to guess that it is about um my my favorite boy uh the 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 dead guy himself he's not dead I I I, I want to hope yeah I, I want to believe uh that this is going to involve death on a Ride on Scythe, being a cool dad. You're not that far off. It's it's a. Uh, That's weirdly close, actually. <laughs> it the the subtitle on this could be, "Death gets an intern." Okay. Yeah, amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll be here for this. It, yeah. Um. This is gonna be a, this is gonna be a fun episode. The next one. Mort is extremely good. Okay, it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at AtuinPod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com 